0: i also have continued with my experiments that is why i am here tonight you must see my creation
1: he was slinging
2: pawns at a
1: bnb when he had no epiphany
2: you Hi, I'm Spencer, a.k.a. Free Thrall This is Keep Off The Borderlands A podcast about RPGs and stuff Now, in this episode With all the Time Bandits talk out of the way I have a bunch of messages I've been itching to address So let's dive straight into that, shall we? First up, a couple of great calls about episode 237, The Roll of the Dice.
3: Hey Spence, this is Ivan. How you doing? I heard your last episode where you mentioned me. That's pretty cool. I really enjoyed the episode for several reasons, but one of them was when you were talking about game design and the percentage chance of success or failure i think i had heard that that wizards of the coast you know had done that research and decided that 65 percent was the sweet spot and you know below that got gritty and uh you know above that got kind of pulpy and you know of course like if you're my age you remember like all these games were kind of gritty um so you know i have played some fifth edition dungeons and dragons running it for kids at the library so i can say the chance of success is much greater than it seems like and you look at things like um Ubiquity, which originally was designed to to power a uh, Hollow Earth expedition and Triple Ace Games has used it in a bunch of other games. You know, there's a, a, a part in that game where you can take the average rather than rolling dice. And had you rolled dice, that would have been sixty five percent chance of success. So that's really kind of interesting. The things seem to circle around there. Um, I made a video about that years ago now, and like you mentioned, like very often we end up making the same video or same podcast or same post, but it's something I might want to revisit at some point, because it really, really affects how you play the game, depending on like what your chances are, and you know it does seem to kind of fall into certain categories, which is really kind of fascinating.
2: Hey, Ivan. Ivan Mike, 1968 there. And you may think it's cool that I mentioned you, but I just have to say how cool it is to get a message from you. I don't know if I've mentioned this, but your YouTube channel was pretty instrumental in helping me find my way back to the hobby. So this is kind of a big deal for me. Assuming the 1968 is a clue to your age, I'm just a couple of years behind you, but I did spend a good 30 years out of the RPG loop. Ubiquity is a system I'm certainly interested in and I've had an eye on for quite some time. In fact, it was probably watching you playing with friend of the show, Anthony Runeslinger-Boyd, that brought it to my attention. And that idea of taking the average rather than rolling is an intriguing one. I should probably go back and take another look at those playthroughs to see that in action. Thank you so much for your call Ivan, Uh, it's really good to hear from you and um, thanks for checking out the show. Talking of actual plays, Ivan is currently running Dark Age of Man, a game written by Jason Graham and Del Branham, sort of set in early medieval Britain or somewhere very much like it, where pagan and Christian ideas meet. Apart from being a really interesting setting, it's a minimalist game focused on improvisational play, an approach I intend to talk a bit more about in this episode. What's also great is that you can watch the creators of the game doing a running commentary on the actual play too, which I found fascinating. I'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes.
4: Hey Spence, it's Jules from Jills from NZ. I was really into your episode that you put out recently uh, about the odds of a D20 and is it swingy, isn't it? And all of that kind of good study. I really enjoyed like the the practical study and look at the numbers and what that all meant. Um, I thought the only thing that you were kind of missing about 5e is that 5e is very much a team sport. So in looking at the numbers and how you would calculate the the swing or the success rate of the dice. You've really got to factor in the fact that assists happen and assisting your team members can literally give you advantage. And how do you factor in, you know, rolling 2d20 and taking the higher as a piece of that percentage chunk? I'm actually not very good at math, so I don't really know how that translates in terms of how that would work out into a percentage, but it happens a lot, right? People will be like, oh, you know, especially on skill checks or t- things that you have time on to achieve, you will often help each other to achieve it. So saving throws might be a little different, Um, but saving throws, you're actually not talking about your standard modifier. So Yes, your average is 12. Yes, that would make it a plus 1, but saving throws are different and and you are able to pump them up quite a lot more than your average modifier. Like I'm I'm looking at um yes, they're level 16, but their saving throws are plus 11 in some of them. So and and you know, you can't get your stats past 20. So I'm still talking plus 11 despite the fact that they only have a plus five to their baseline modifier. So that's kind of one example of how the the saving throws can kind of get out of hand. So I think you find that, in actual fact, a D20 is quite swingy and maybe less so on the lower levels, but definitely more so on the higher. And I know people are like, oh, high D&D is, is not even that challenging. They just kind of blitz it all the time. But actually, that's not really true either. They fail miserably sometimes because you just hit them where it hurts on that stat that they used as a dump stat and they just really struggle. Um, but yes, they're lights out on the things that they are good at. My rogue right now, nothing is unpickable. Nothing is unstealthable. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there are ways to work with that. Yeah. Anyway, just some thoughts on how d d is a team sport and how it kind of screws with the <laughs> law of averages quite a lot. Um, it's it's intriguing to me, and I may have to put out an episode about this myself. Is a D20 that swingy in 5e? I love this concept, Spence. We're going to talk about it more. Okay, I'm out. Bye.
2: Hey, Jules. Jules Burgessor. I realise I've been saying Burgesser, so apologies, Jules. Jules from NZ there, of course. Dropping some 5E knowledge. A great point about assists. I knew there had to be a little bit more going on than what I was suggesting. As for the advantage-disadvantage thing, I think it... Crudely works out at about plus three, minus three, respectively, when rolling D20s. I'm not really a maths guy either, and I'm not sure how that is calculated. I'm just taking Brandish Gilhelm's word for that, the man behind Runehammer's index card RPG. And I should also probably mention Runehammer's latest offering. Crown and Skull, another game geared towards improvisational play that's doing some really interesting things with tools and procedures for generating content on the fly. And you can thank the previous caller, Ivan, for stimulating all the dice talk. He's got some really great videos on YouTube on the subject. That channel is Ivan Mike 1968 Thank you for that, Jules, and glad to hear you're feeling so much better. Anybody looking for awesome GMing advice should really check out Jules's latest episode. As Jules would say, it's chocker. And also, thank you very much, Jules, for giving Movie Monday a shout-out. That was great to hear, and I really look forward to hearing your entry. So, yeah, Movie Monday. This month's movie is 1981's Dragon Slayer. Give it a watch. Let me know what you think. Get your messages to me by the 23rd if you want to be featured on the show, airing on Monday the 26th. You can email your messages to spencer.freethrall at gmail.com or send them via Discord as detailed in the show notes. I look forward to hearing from you. Next up, I have a couple of messages in response to a request I put out asking for four words to describe your preferred playstyle. This got me thinking a little more about my initial somewhat pithy thoughts. The first message is one I've actually already played from Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast, but I felt it deserved a fuller answer, which is essentially what this whole episode is about. Um that's followed by a message from Michael aka Merc the Meek responding to that same question.
5: As far as four words to describe playstyle, you know, I think maybe four descriptors for playstyle, maybe not single word descriptors, are a useful thing. Daniel's talked about this over Bandits Keep recently as well. I've been thinking about it. I don't have mine really nailed down. I might do an episode on the 24th of January about this. But to give you something off the top of my head, just to give you an answer, we'll go with Mies. Meaningful play, meaning that I get to meaningfully influence the world, whether in combats my actions matter or my decisions how to combat matter. We'll go with enjoyable. Now, that might be fun. It might be laughing at the table, or it might be enjoyable the way... a A horror movie is enjoyable, where it kind of grips you and you're thinking about it afterwards. But it's an enjoyable session. It's one that sucks you in, which is, well, we'll come to that in a minute. Uh, Ease of use, meaning no VTTs to fiddle with. It could be a a complicated system, but it's a complicated system that's easy to use. Like Rollmaster is clunky in character creation and leveling up, but at the table is not bad. So it just depends, but preferably no VTTs anything like that. Last thing would be you're sucked in which a lot of people will say is engagement or immersion, but you're not feeling that you have to reach for your phone during the game.
0: Hey, Spencer, this is Merck. I meant to send in my four-word philosophy of gaming, I suppose. I just was thinking about it and then forgot and moved on to other things and then remembered again with Jason's call-in in your last episode. So I'm going to say my four things are problem-solving, exploratory, pacifistic shenanigans. Problem-solving, much like what Jason was saying about making meaningful choices. Exploratory, I love finding out details of the world, lore, just different little things that wouldn't be obvious to the normal person pacifistic meaning not so much like never having combat but I would rather try to find ways to avoid combat as much as possible so I'm not a huge fan of like this combat is inevitable I suppose it certainly could be and you've got reaction roles but I prefer negotiating or running away or uh, tricking the the enemies in some way instead of just jumping into a combat encounter. And then shenanigans. I guess that word has a connotation of, you know, jokey, silly, getting in trouble. That's at least some of it. I do enjoy when things kind of go pear-shaped and uh, you gotta recover from it, and uh, I, I enjoy watching things unravel in that way. But I guess it's it's more about just, like, thinking outside the box and trying to get to a solution that way instead of, you know, just the straightforward what the, the game master or the DM might expect. So, yeah, that's kind of my four. At least right now, I'm sure it'll uh, evolve over time or if I think about it more. But there you have it. Thanks for the episodes. Thanks for pitching this whole concept and getting me thinking about it. So until next time, take care.
2: Thank you for those messages. A really interesting point there from Merck about taking a more pacifistic approach. And while I don't often see it expressed like that, it's certainly an idea put forward in the OSR, that sort of Creative conflict avoidance is certainly encouraged by the combination of lethal combat, squishy characters, and imbalanced random encounters. Also, the re-emergence of concepts like reaction rolls and morale checks to get away from the whole combat as sport idea. Yes, and hijinks shenanigans are certainly On the list for me too. Things going pear shaped. Which is often (laughs) the primary cause. Of getting into combat in these games. I'm just butting in on myself here. Because I almost missed a message. From Menyon aka Rob. Of Confessions of a wee Timorous Bushy, Responding to that same request I put out. He also touches on my reference to. OSR not being a particularly good label for the uninitiated. Incidentally, if anyone has sent me a message and you haven't heard me play it, please don't hesitate to remind me because, you know, occasionally things do get lost in the shuffle. Let's hear what Rob has to say.
1: Hey Spencer, this is Rob, also known as Minion from Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy, calling in again this time about your acronyms, or is it anachronisms? Ooh, ooh. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, it's not quite the same, but the white box has a similar title to the one that you came up with. Um, obviously, white box is not the one, um, and it's not an acron- anachronism, or, <laughs> oh idea! I've started myself on the- It's not an acronym. I'm not drunk, by the way. Um it's white box, but its subtitle is Fantastic Medieval Adventure Game. Um presumably they didn't call it FMAG because it just didn't sound quite right, but yeah, Fantastic Medieval Adventure Game definitely says what it is, right? Better than I mean it does have OSR on the sheet as well. And we've also got Osric, which has got OSR in the name, but it's Osric, which stands for Old school reference and index compilation, which you know, you can see why they went for Osric, right? Because it just doesn't trip off the tongue. Um, you know, Osric is actually a very good name, I think, for the um, role playing game that's emulating first edition advanced Dungeons and Dragons. But yeah, the white box that works, and a fantastic medieval adventure game says what the game is about very much in the way that yours, your title, does as well. Your acronym does um and that's all i've got to say really i think why did why do this maybe yeah you're right maybe the old school renaissance etc doesn't really help anymore maybe it did for a while maybe it doesn't now and um something like giving some words that actually describe what the game is about probably helps a little bit more than even rpg which is tends to be translated more as role playing rather than the game part, that last G part, seems to often get lost from the mix. What do you think? What do people think? I don't know. Anyways, I thought I'd just uh, call in because I haven't done it for a while. And uh, I was listening to your podcast and, uh, well, here I am. All right, take care, man. Bye-bye.
2: Rob, I think you, <laughs> you tripped yourself up there, didn't you? Going gonzo and evoking anachronisms. I do think Charlie Mason's take on white box. With its fantastic medieval adventure game tag, is a good example. If not an indication of the kind of rules you're getting into, certainly conveys the setting and the kind of game it is well enough. Obviously, the white box part doesn't really explain anything to anyone not versed in the origins of DD. I have to agree, Osric is pretty hard to beat as an acronym it also being the name of the 7th century Anglo-Saxon king, which is nice. I certainly went through a period of preferring the term adventure game to role-playing game, just because I associated the term role-playing with the more performative aspects of the game when I was more interested in the explorative aspects of play but I have since realised and accepted that the term role-playing can simply mean controlling a character within a game world. Thank you very much for that call, Rob. Cheers. Somewhat fittingly, this episode is a combination of ideas that have piqued my interest recently. I say recently. Over the last couple of months. But this is something. Of a sequel of sorts. To safer fantasy crafting's. Extremely thought provoking episode. From way back in July 2020. Entitled RPGs. Of Frankenstein's Monsters. And as it is with sequels. This is something. Of a watering down. Of that original idea. And perhaps even only tangentially. Related. And we'll probably end up going in a very different direction. In that original episode by Safer, he spoke of how RPGs are a hybrid of elements taken from wargaming, gaming, play acting and storytelling, and how they are also a pale shadow of these influences, yet at the same time are quite a unique and exciting experience for participants. And he also spoke about how selecting particular elements to focus on. And in doing that, we're doing a disservice to ourselves and the game. I'm paraphrasing here, of course, and you should really go and listen to that episode if you haven't. There'll be a link in the show notes, of course. I'll be attempting to cover a lot of different things, potentially disparate elements, and no doubt failing to explore any of them in any real depth. Think of it as me kind of setting out my stall. Hopefully there will be something here of interest to someone. In true Frankenstein form, it's not just Safer's episode that inspired this one. There are episodes from other shows that I referred to in some of my previous episodes I mentioned an episode of Rich Frazier's Cockatrice Nuggets, where he spoke about his preferred playstyle, an episode of Between Two Cairns, where Yohai and Brad responded to a similar question about playstyles, an episode of Mastering Dungeons, episode 171, where they also responded to a similar question, and my own thoughts about that same question in my own episode. Then there are some recent calls to Pink Phantom where I considered RPGs lying on a sort of spectrum with storytelling at one end and unstructured play at the other. And there was also an episode of Runehammer's Hammer's podcast, RPG Mainframe, that popped up on YouTube entitled Creative Origins and Chrono Trigger. I assumed this was something recent, but it turns out to be an old episode from November 2022, it was a fascinating lesson and Brandish Gilhelm, Hanker inferno Ingrid Bernal was the particular moniker he was going by at the time. Um, anyway, he'd gone back to play Chrono Trigger, an old favourite RPG video game from back in 1995 and he was struck by the realisation that so much of his own TTRPG ideas were inspired by this game that initial thought was a negative one prompting him to feel that what he thought were his original ideas was just him unwittingly ripping off this game however he soon realised this wasn't such a bad thing and rediscovering that source of his inspiration was creatively reinvigorating and he urged listeners to contemplate their own creative origins. And that's kind of what I'm doing here. As I've said before, I got into role-playing via fighting fantasy, solo game books, and computer text adventures. Back in 1982, I'm almost certain I'd seen stuff about Dungeons & Dragons on TV prior to that. But... um. Yeah, discovering these solo game books and text adventures, I almost immediately realized the limitations of that kind of interactive fiction approach. With text adventures, it was the language language barrier. Essentially, the computer only understood a limited number and combination of words. And the game was basically about figuring out what order things needed to happen in in order to proceed through the game. More often than not, the experience devolved into kind of guessing what the writer was thinking when they created the game, about as much fun as trying to log into an account that you've forgotten the password for. That's not to say there wasn't a lot of fun to be had with those games. With the fighting fantasy books... There were similar problems with limitations on the choices that were available for you. No opportunity to explore novel ideas you might have while playing, little possibility of backtracking without cheating or revisiting areas and seeing evidence that you'd been there before. Um, I am aware that some books later on in the series do attempt to address these issues with varying degrees of success. But those early books did feel railroady, basically, and by that, I mean, it was a bit like being on a ghost train. Sure you could change what route you were taking at certain points, but there was usually only one true way, and God help you if you ever encountered a maze in one of these books. That was a surefire way for the book to get itself tossed aside in frustration. And that's not to say that these books weren't great either. The art alone had a huge impact on me. And I'd also highly recommend checking out the podcast Fantastic Fights, where Eronymus J. Doom plays and reviews the fighting fantasy books, along with other choose-your-own-adventure interactive fiction-style books. But there was a particular itch there that wasn't being scratched, The exploration was there to an extent, as was interacting with a world, perhaps not quite a living and breathing world that I was hoping for, but what was missing was freedom, player agency. Far too often, the text adventure would respond with phrases like, you can't do that here, or the game book would not present you with what you felt was the obvious choice for your character to take in that particular moment. But there were games that kind of scratched that autonomy itch. One in particular that springs to mind is something called Ant Attack. And I'm just going to read a bit from the wiki page. Ant Attack is a ZX Spectrum game by Sandy White published by Quicksilver in 1983. It was converted to the Commodore 64 in 1984. While Zaxxon and Cubit previously used isometric projection. Ant Attack added an extra degree of freedom, the ability to go up and down instead of just north, south, east and west. And it may be the first isometric game for personal computers. Players entered a walled city of Antesca to rescue individuals who'd been captured and immobilised somewhere in the city. The city is inhabited by giant ants, which chase and attempt to bite the player. The player can defend themselves by throwing grenades at the ants, but these can also harm the humans. Once the hostage is rescued, the two must escape the city. The game then starts again with the hostage located in a different, harder to reach part of the city. This was a game in which your task was very simple, but for the first time, there was a real sense that my stick man could go anywhere in this arguably simple, isometric world of blocks, walls, pyramids, and angry ants. A very humble sandbox. You couldn't do a lot beyond explore it, but it was a start. And it's that sense of self-determinism that I think leads all the way to the development of games like Minecraft, where beyond simply surviving, you have to create your own purpose, your own motivations, your own goals. I think that's at least one pillar of what I'm talking about here and not just autonomy, self-determinism, freedom of action, but an environment, a world that responds to your actions, a world of consequences. And also beyond that, a world that's independent of the character, where for everything you choose to do, there are other things left undone. For every situation you engage with, there are events unfolding in the wider world that you've yet to engage with. It seems to me that creating this sense of a living world is far more important than how one goes about doing it. The important thing is to avoid that sense that like in the fighting fantasy books, events have frozen in time, like some animatronic diorama waiting for you to insert a coin before it springs into action but that's another discussion for another time, I think. Also, the things I've mentioned here so far, Minecraft aside, are all solo activities. RPGs, by and large, are group activities. Sure, there are tools we can use to get around this a bit, but what better way to explore a living, breathing fantasy world than with living, breathing people to bounce your ideas off of? This obviously also allows for the freedom of action, the freedom of movement. One of the unique experiences that a tabletop role-playing game can provide, an open world. There are some games that get close to that experience for me, and I think playing things like Skyrim and Fallout, open world games, certainly until you get to the edge of the map, where you can create your own character, tell your own story, a certain extent. They were certainly partially responsible for bringing me back to tabletop RPGs. Something else that brings all that to life for me is the interaction of elements within a world. I found playing games where factions are operating to be very enjoyable. I mean, I understand the attraction of simple good versus evil games, but I find things far more interesting when I'm dealing with grey areas. Are we doing the right thing? Are we on the right side? Are we working with the right people? I do appreciate a good dilemma. It's also that interaction of elements that attracts me to Gonzo, I think. The more disparate the combination of elements, the more potentially interesting the results may be. But obviously, there is a time and a place for Gonzo. And it's not welcome everywhere. Which brings me to random tables, improv, and the unpredictability of what emerges from that. In fact, I've got an idea forming in my head. Interaction, dynamism, exploration, adventure. Another nice acronym, perhaps. So why do I lean towards the more OSR, NSR stuff? It's because of that point of engagement, immersion in character as character, that's being talked about a lot right now. And that doesn't have to be a performative thing, as much as I like doing silly voices. While I'm not against the whole story game approach where players are encouraged to play a part in the world building, I don't feel that's conducive to creating the sense of exploration that I'm really looking for, you know, exploring something external to my character. Thinking of influences again, another significant one for me was the BBC game show from the early 80s called The Adventure Game. I'm sure I've spoken about this in episodes before, but can I find them? My past show notes are obviously lacking somewhat. The Adventure Game was a creation of Patrick Dowling who wanted to make a program inspired by D&D and the work of Douglas Adams. The show had a sci-fi fantasy theme and was essentially a series of escape rooms ending with contestants crossing this large trellis-like structure hoping not to encounter the vortex, a crude special effect that the players couldn't see. I had to avoid bumping into. The whole lateral thinking, team building, problem solving aspect of the show really appealed to me and it's something I look for in RPGs. I'm not necessarily talking about straight up puzzles and riddles and stuff, which can potentially be session killers, but, but the whole idea of being rewarded for having novel ideas. I guess That's another pillar for me, and there's certainly the social aspect of the activity being brought in there too. The importance of that can't be underestimated for me. Gaming is the only real social activity I regularly engage in, as I don't venture out into the world all too often. Another part of that problem-solving aspect is a preference for randomness in character creation as opposed to building a character. Part of the fun for me is figuring out how I might turn a seemingly useless bunch of random junk into something useful. The idea of trying to make the best of a bad hand. I think that encourages innovative solutions as well. I listened to a really great episode of Same Old G where they were in conversation with Anthony Boyd, talking about cultures of play. I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode as well. During the episode, Anthony speaks about the idea of an RPG as a conversation, pointing out how that's often said but rarely qualified. It's an incomplete sentence because, you know, what is that conversation really about? As a conversation about the nature of an imagined world. Certainly on one level, it's characters negotiating an environment that is the imagined world. It can also be a conversation between players that will no doubt include discussing the rules of the game. And on another level, it's a social interaction, friends enjoying the activity of play. And this is all about personal preferences, remember, not what style of play is best. I've played games that involve players in meta story gaming stuff and I've had a great time doing that too. I just like being surprised by emergent narratives. Things going off at unpredictable tangents. I'm less concerned about satisfying story arcs that get neatly tied up. I mean, it's great when things like that happen but it's a whole lot more satisfying when that seems to happen organically while you're engaging in other stuff. As humans, and I'm not just talking about gaming here, we are great at creating narratives. We create narratives all the time. Narratives to explain our own actions or just trying to make sense of the chaos of the world that's around us. I was listening to another podcast I enjoy called Team Human This isn't a gaming podcast, just for me, it's a dose of positivity in these uncertain times, hosted by Douglas Rushkoff, a media theorist. In this particular episode, he was interviewing Brendan Lemon, a comedian who I'm not familiar with, but he certainly sounds like a really interesting guy. Anyway, their conversation got me thinking about the growing popularity of story games that support narrative and wondering if folks are losing that skill of creating narratives or maybe just craving a bit more narrative given the narrative-free nature of social media. Narratives give a sense of place in the world, although not necessarily a good place, but it gives you something solid and that can be helpful as much as it can be Unhelpful, I'll admit. I realise I haven't played nearly enough story-type games to really have an opinion. I'm certainly up for having more exposure to that kind of stuff. I'm just talking about what intrigues me the most. As for the whole wargaming aspect of play, that's an area where I have zero experience. I didn't come to RPGs via wargaming. I've not even played a skirmish game. Tactical combat isn't high on the list for me, although I'm happy to be shown the pleasures of such playstyles. I did back the recent Forbidden Psalms Kickstarter, a skirmish game built using the Morkborg rules, so I'm not ruling anything out here. Perhaps I should probably talk about the rules of the game themselves and my preferences for light minimalist rules. Now, as much as I struggle with reading, I'm not necessarily talking about light text. Yes, I prefer implied settings to pages of law and fiction, but my preference for light rules is more about comprehension and retention than anything else. I appreciate brevity, but I also appreciate examples of play, design notes, intent, philosophies of play, that kind of stuff. I also have an almost... Wally Coyote-esque desire to squeeze as much as possible out of the simplest rules. In episode 238, what are the odds? I mentioned Cthulhu Dark, a deceptively simple D6 system that seems to me at least to be able to convey a surprising amount of information. Now, I know that the system doesn't really cover combat in any way. But there are hacks that may address this. In fact, Graham Walmsley himself, the creator of Cthulhu Dark, is currently working on a sci fi horror version of the game called Cosmic Dark, which may address this. But you can get an awful lot out of simply rolling a couple of dice. You can look at the total, you can look at the highest number, the lowest number, the difference between those numbers, you can look for doubles. And if you're using different coloured dice, that can say something about the kind of results you're getting too. It's certainly something Barney Dicker of Loco Ludus explores with the Alluvial Plane system. And I guess that's a nice place to kind of tie things off. So, in summary, what I'm looking for in a game is is simple rules and procedures that allow for an exploration of an organic world that exists independently of my character, interacting with that world primarily through my character, both character and world being generated via a certain degree of randomness that gives rise to unpredictability and presents an environment ripe with discovery that fuels and perpetuates exploration. Confounds expectations that presents challenging dilemmas, difficult decisions, impactful choices with meaningful consequences. Now, that's not too much to ask, is it? (laughs) I'm starting to sound pretty high maintenance, aren't I? Um, Well, look, I'm also open to new experiences, pina coladas, getting caught in the rain. Well, that's quite enough from me. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate all the messages I receive. If you'd like to contact me, you can leave an audio message via speakpipe.com slash keep off the borderlands or one word, or you can email me at spencer.freethrall at gmail.com. You can also find me in a variety of other places, as detailed in the show notes. If you enjoy the show, a review would certainly be much appreciated. Music for Keep Off The Borderlands is provided by the multi-talented Mr. TJ Drennan. And it just remains for me to say, take it away, TJ.